in Acts. Um, and then he went back and visited them again, uh, some of them a couple times, uh, to deal with some issues that were cropping up amongst these churches. You know, these were, these were mostly Gentiles in these churches. These were what they might call a Greek. They were not Jews. And so there were things going on, things cropping up in these uh, congregations or churches that he had to deal with. <clears throat> and we've talked about every week what the per primary purpose of this letter was. And of course, in the first, first chapter, verse 1, he's establishing, Paul is establishing his apostleship, right? <clears throat> he is telling those who are going to read this letter that I am an apostle pointed by God, not by men. I have become an apostle uh, not of the first 12 or not of those guys. I was not with those people. I was not amongst them. He was a persecutor of the church, right? We talked last week about that fantastic turnaround in his life after he saw the Lord. And so he is defending that apostleship, and that's going to play in <clears throat> to what he's having to deal with in these churches, right? He's defending that apostleship, that authority he has from God to preach to the Gentiles. And then in verses 11 and 12 of that first chapter, he's defending the gospel that he's preaching. The gospel of Jesus Christ him cru and him crucified. The gospel that is now being brought to the Gentiles, which many of the Jews did not understand, many did not like, and many did not believe was to be done, right? So he's having to defend himself and show who he is, why he has the authority to do this, and that it came from God, not man. <clears throat> Today we're going to begin in chapter 2. And let's start with chapter 2, verse 1, and just start reading there. He's going to talk about defending that gospel a little bit. He says, verse 1, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. <clears throat> All right, that's some very powerful verses, right? That's some very big-time statements he's making. Perhaps some statements that the Jews needed to hear, right? They're needing to hear this to understand where he's coming from and what the gospel is really about, right? Not being the gospel of the law, but the gospel of liberty in Christ Jesus. And we've talked about that a little bit, right? And doing so, he recounts a meeting that took place in Jerusalem in which he and Barnabas and Titus attended. And he had an opportunity to relate that gospel that he's preached, right? Yet there were some who were compelled to say, hey, Titus, he's Greek, he needs to be circumcised, right? They were trying to get him to do that. These are false brethren who are trying to force Titus to keep the law, right? And Paul adamantly refuses, standing fast at this for the truth of the gospel. You see, the issue of circumcision and the gospel was a major concern in the first century, right? Major concern. The Gentiles or non-Jews who became Christians, these people were saying, you got to keep the law still. 
In other words, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep all of it. And this question preoccupied many churches throughout much of Paul's ministry, right? Well, this issue is not something that we have to deal with today, really, right? We don't hear, I don't know, maybe you've heard of somebody saying you've got to be circumcised. I've, never, I've not heard it amongst the churches. So it's not something that's prominent today, right? But at that time it was. You still have Jews who were keeping the law, trying to hold that that's got to continue, even though they have become followers of Christ. Well, it's not necessarily a problem today, but there's a lot of lessons we can glean from the study of the practice of circumcision and what is going on here in the first century, right? Turn over to the book of Genesis and let's just see what was said about circumcision and why it was so important to the Jews. Genesis chapter 17. <clears throat> and let's just, be, well, let's just begin in verse 17. Genesis 17, uh, verse, I'm sorry, let's, let's begin in verse 9. Getting, to, getting past this stuff here. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your descendants after you, every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He, he who is eight years old among you shall be circumcised every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Remember that phrase, an everlasting covenant. And the circumcised male and the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And then we move on to verse 23. He says, So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were brought with his money, bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day. As God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised. And his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or brought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And then going on in chapter 18 there, it says, Then the Lord appeared to him in the Tebrah tents of Mamre, sitting in the tent in the door. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing and when he saw them, he ran from the tent to the greeting and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in sight, do not pass by your servant. And going on down, he talks about how he was to give, Sarah was to give birth. They said to him in verse 9, Where is Sarah your wife? She said, Here in the tent. He said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. And of course, we know how that story goes. Sarah laughed and she didn't believe it. Men rose from there, looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them. And eventually, we read that Abraham circumcised his son Isaac. So we have this going on all through the generations, right? Abraham, uh, he circumcised Ishmael. And then we read in Exodus 4 where Moses circumcised his sons and gave that ordinance to Israel as he was about to lead them out of Egypt. It was required to observe the Passover. Turn over to Exodus chapter 12. And just read about that. Uh, 
uh, beginning in verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in a fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. I'm sorry, I'm way too ahead of myself here. Verse uh, 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. In other words, it's a pretty important thing to the Jews, right? Here you have law, the law stating you cannot even participate in the Passover, the great deliverance from Egypt, the great feast that they observed yearly without being circumcised. If you were a proselyte to Judaism, you could not partake of the Passover until you were circumcised. It was very important to the Jews. Leviticus talks about the male children who were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Of course, we know that's a physical thing too, right? It's eight days before a baby's blood starts to coagulate and all that, right? That, that was part of that. And did you know the Jews that were born in the wilderness were not circumcised until they crossed over the Jordan? Interesting point. Go to Joshua chapter 5, and let's read about that. So it was, beginning in verse 1, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites were by the sea, heard the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt for all the people who came out had been circumcised but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised for the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord so interesting point when they get into Jordan they're in the promised land now right now those who were born in the wilderness had to be circumcised very important point right so you can see how this is something that would concern the Jews, perhaps, right? Who had been keeping the law all their lives. We read in Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist, when he was born, says he was circumcised. Jesus, Luke chapter 2, was circumcised as an infant. This was occurring to all Jewish boys, right? But it becomes an issue when the gospel was first preached to the Gentiles. And we read about a little bit of this before, but let's turn back to Acts chapter 11 and see something that's said about all this. <clears throat> and keep your finger in Acts because we'll be referring back to it again. Acts 
as we go through this study. Acts chapter 11, and beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, and an object descended from heaven. In other words, we know the story, how Peter saw the vision. It told him you needed to go to see Cornelius, and there's, there was something to be done with the Gentiles that were devout, right? They were to be preached to. Also in Acts 15, turn over there. Something else had about it. Verse 1, he says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, that he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium, Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they, will knew, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Here we have several examples of things going on with circumcision. Paul even going as far as having Timothy, a Gentile, circumcised because he didn't want to have a controversy there. He knew what that might do in his preaching. So Paul has Timothy uh, circumcised, it's a focus of controversy in Antioch and Jerusalem. And Paul refers to it over and over and over. Not just in Galatians. In Romans, several chapters, he's going to refer to it. Corinthians, especially Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians. All these letters refer to this controversy that's going on about these so-called brethren coming in and saying, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the law. So it had great significance. We just read there that they are saying, you gotta, you got to be circumcised if you're going to be saved. can't be saved without it, right? you got to keep the law. All these things are going on. Well, the truth is physical circumcision was not required, right? Yeah, in the Old Testament, in the law, we read where that was the sign of the covenant, you had to do it before you could even participate in the Passover, but we start to see examples where it's not done. Turn back over to Acts 10, and let's read about Cornelius there, that Gentile who Peter went to see. Beginning in verse 44, Acts 10, 44. He says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision, in other words, the Jewish men who were there, who believed, who were Christians, were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water, that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Now, the point I'm trying to make there is, they weren't told to be circumcised, they were told they needed to be baptized. A little different, right? Turn over there in chapter 11. 
verse uh, 16, he says, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you should be baptized by the Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should, could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent. They glorified God, saying, Then God also granted Gentiles repentance to life. You don't see any account about having to be circumcised in that account, right? <clears throat> Paul did not require it. Peter was not told to require them to have, uh, be circumcised. We read uh, last week or week before about the council that was in Jerusalem in Acts 15. I'm not going to read that whole passage. But they remember how the Peter and Barnabas went and met with the apostles and they had the council. And there were things that people were asking about. Do we got to keep this? We got to do that? And they said... There's only a few things. Don't abstain from me, sacrificed idols. And that's about it. And they didn't have anything about circumcision. So we see that, right? It's also expounded upon by Paul in his letters over and over, as I mentioned. Turn over to Romans chapter 4, and let's read what he said there. Romans chapter 4, being in verse 8. Is it, well, let's, let's say in seven. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does the blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Hmm. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Hmm. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So well, Paul is saying what? When was Abraham considered righteous? When he believed. Before he was circumcised. The point he's making is that's not necessary. It's not required to be saved. It's the faith that counts, right? It's that faith that counts here. Well, what are we talking about then? What, why, why does this all matter? What's the big deal about it, right? Well, Remember, when you talk about things in the Old Testament, there's a lot of things that are foreshadowed, right? A lot of things that occurred in the Old Testament. Think about all the animal sacrifices. We don't keep those today because they were a foreshadowing of what? The lamb being, uh, being crucified. The lamb being slaughtered for our sake, right? The perfect child of God, the perfect son of God who shed his blood once for all. These things were foreshadowing what was to come, right? In the same way, physical circumcision. It was that sign of the covenant. It's also a sign of things to come. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Maybe this will help you understand what I'm talking about here. <clears throat> Beginning of verse 11, he says, Paul says, In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. 
by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So what's Paul saying here? You see, you've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You have been buried with Christ in baptism and made alive through Christ with forgiveness of your sins. In other words, the baptism that you now did was a form of that circumcision. We'll talk about this a little more, expand on it, but that's the point he's making. It was a foreshadowing of now that covenant you're making personally. We had the covenant at the beginning, Abraham, the sign of the Israelites for that whole nation, God's people. In the future now, you are personally baptized into him, and that's that circumcision of the heart, right? Now you have that sign on you personally because of that relationship you have with the son. The physical right, the physical right or the physical part of circumcision has, not, has become a matter of indifference to God now. That's not something to be kept. Paul is saying that over and over and over. From both the practice of circumcision and the truth of the gospel that he's trying to reveal. That liberty that we have in Christ Jesus. In other words, the ritual alone was not adequate. And by the way, in the Old Testament, it was not adequate. Alone. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 4. Let's see what, he, what Jeremiah says about circumcision. Chapter 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. In other words, he's saying, you can be circumcised physically, but not of the heart. Jeremiah's even describing that in the Old Testament. You see, even in the Old Testament, you could be a Jew outwardly. You could be one of God's people outwardly, but on the inside, son of the devil, just like today, right? The point being, it was not so much the outward sign that saved you, it was the inner faith, the inner heart. Turn over to Romans 2, and let's see what Paul had to say there. I know we're jumping around, but I want you to see these. These are, these are good statements that can help us to apply things today. Romans 2 and verse uh, 28. He says, For he is not a Jew who was one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. It's the circumcision of the heart that matters. It's the sign of the heart, the faith. That is what God wants. That's what truly makes you a child of God. The same is true of baptism, right? Acts 2, yes, sir.
Yeah. That's a great point, Brother John. Yeah, just because you are baptized doesn't mean you've given all that up, right? It's a process of growth. It's something that you need to have the mindset to do. Absolutely. Very good point. Very good point. Even baptism can be an outward expression without the inward faith, right? Without the circumcision of the heart that Paul describes here. Another point I want to make about this is, you know, we know that the law has passed away, right? In Matthew 5, Jesus said, there not a jot or tittle of the law would pass until all was fulfilled. And Jesus was, what? The fulfillment of the law, right? Circumcision was required by law. We just read that in Exodus 12, right? <clears throat> but circumcision, if circumcision is no longer binding, and we say that it's not, Paul says that it's not, that change implies what? as far as the law goes. I mean, circumcision was a great major piece of that law, right? So if that's no longer binding, then perhaps we can say the law has passed away, right? The law is no longer binding either, right? I'm throwing that out there because I know it's probably in your head right now. What are you talking about? We got to have the law, right? We got to know what sin is. Yes, of course we do. That's how we know. It was revealed to us through his scripture, right? But there's an interesting point that Paul is making about that liberty that we have in Christ Jesus. Circumcision is no longer binding. That change implies the passing away of the law. And a similar point is made in Hebrews. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. I want you to see this because it does relate very closely. And this is talking about our great high priest now, Jesus Christ. Just like I talked about how the foreshadowing of the animal sacrifices pointing to the sacrificial lamb, the blood of Christ being shed. In a similar fashion, the Hebrew writer's talking about that high priest, the priesthood that was men before and now has become Christ. Read, read along with me, chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, in other words, they got the law from the Levitical priesthood, the priests who were of the tribe of Levi. What further need was there for another priest? That another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man is officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord Jesus arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Pay attention to that. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order 
of Melchizedek. For on the hand, one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That is a powerful verse. Powerful verse. And you need to try to understand that fully. Powerful set of verses. You see, the Hebrew writer is saying, we don't have the Levitical priesthood anymore. That was foreshadowing of what was to come. Now we have the priest who is from Judah, who is everlasting, who is our intercessor to God, who is alive, sitting at the right hand of God in the throne room, and that allows us to come before him right into the throne room of God and speak straight to him. In other words, the law was not perfect. No one could keep it. Yeah, that's how we learn what's right and wrong. That's how we know what sin is. And we need to do what's right. As Brother John said, we've got to set our minds on what is right. But now, you see that last little verse, it's not about keeping the law. It's about drawing near to him. That relationship thing. Keeping the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's that liberty we have in Christ. It's no longer about keeping the law. It's about loving God. And having a circumcision of the heart, faith. The outward things are important. And we have a process to get into Christ. We are baptized into him. That's how we get in touch with that blood. That's the example we have, the commands we have. But it's not about keeping the things of the law. It's about that relationship you have. wanted you to keep that in mind about the everlasting covenant that we read back in Genesis. Some might say, well, Genesis says that circumcision is an everlasting covenant. It's going to be there forever, no matter what. Well, is it? The word there is Hebrew olam, or O-L-A-M. It doesn't necessarily mean lasting forever. I know we can wordsmith and all that stuff. I don't want to get into that. But that has several meanings. It can mean a lifetime, a generation. It can mean referring to the temporal sphere of God, that he's everlasting, right? Might cover a personal lifetime, many generations of people. We read about that in Joshua. It's used as turn off, talk about the present created order in Deuteronomy. But you got to read it in context. Yes, sir. Become a burden, and you have don't have the animal sacrifice. You now have the ultimate human sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Absolutely, good point. Point I'll make about that though, everlasting. 
if someone wanted to say that we have to keep the covenant of circumcision because of it's talked about being an everlasting covenant, then the same word is used in Exodus 12 to refer to the Passover. The same word is used in Exodus 29 to refer to the priesthood of Aaron. The same word is used in Exodus 12 to refer to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The same word is used in Exodus 31 to refer to the Sabbath. The same word is used in Leviticus 6 to refer to the sacrifices and the portions that were received by the priest. I can go on and on. Point being, these are things that have passed away. We don't have to keep. As I've talked about, these were foreshadowing of the great sacrificial lamb to come, the great Messiah who died for us and gave us hope of eternal life. Yes, ma'am. Right. Yeah. Yeah, in, the, in that sense. Right. And we're talking about baptism being like a form of circumcision. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's still, that's a foreshadowing what was to come. And that sense, baptism has become kind of that same sign, right? So the circumcision is no longer binding, though. We should not be surprised um, that it, with other elements of the law that aren't binding anymore, right? For instance, Colossians 2, turn over there. <clears throat> Should have stayed in there. Colossians 2. Uh, Paul's going to continue to talk about a few other things that are going on in the church in Colossae. In 16, verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, Let no one judge you in food or in drink, or in regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking the light in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. That liberty in Christ, these are not required anymore. Don't listen to somebody who thinks he's some puffed up dude telling some truth when it's not gospel. These were foreshadowing of what was to come. It says it right there. Interesting points. Paul did use some traditional things, though, when it became expedient, right? Acts 16, he had Timothy circumcised. But he did that for a purpose. It wasn't that he was to keep the law. He didn't want to cause a controversy among those who knew his parents, knew where he was from. Acts 18, Acts 21, we read about him taking a vow to get his hair cut. That was a Jewish thing. Acts 21, there were some animal sacrifices that were being kept. It wasn't because that was something that was needed to be done, but it was because it was expedient for that time. You remember Paul said, when I was in Rome, I did things as the Romans? That's what he's talking about there. He's trying to spread the gospel. Sometimes some of these traditions, which were not a sinful or not about keeping the law, were kept to further the gospel. Interesting points. And that's something that we can be studying on another time to talk about that a little bit. But he opposed circumcision and all other elements of the law when people attempted to do things like bind it on the Gentiles, as in the case of Titus, right? Or use it for a purpose of justification to say, you're not going to be saved unless you're circumcised. 
Jesus also condemned traditions of men. Mark 7 talks about that, right? There are times when the right circumstances allow it, right? Romans chapter 14. I want to read a verse there. A couple of verses when he's referring to the Romans. 14 verse. Uh, he's having to deal, in verse four, chapter 14, he's dealing with that law of liberty, right? He's dealing with folks who are weaker in the faith saying things that they may need to keep that he's saying are not necessary, but... Read what he says here, beginning in verse 1. He says, Receive one who's weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. In other words, there are times when you, traditions are, are to be I don't want to say kept, right? But when you're dealing with someone perhaps as a weaker brother, you need to be patient with them, right? Yeah, you, you want to teach them that the liberty of Christ, these are not required through that liberty anymore. These, these are not requirements, but you're not going to go condemning some. They're saved, he's saying. And just because one says, I don't think we should eat on this day or that day, don't condemn them for it. They're still brothers, right? And in those circumstances, it's okay for some traditions to be kept. But when you make those traditions binding one for salvation, that's where the problem comes in. And that's what was going on here with circumcision. The issue of circumcision is pretty antiquated, right? It's certainly not one of those hot issues today. But we can understand that that issue can help us transition into other things we have to deal with today, right? Uh, elements of the law, circumcision, Passover, Sabbath are not binding today. And these are something that some people get obsessed with. And so we have to be careful how we deal with it, of course. But understand it's not the law. It's the liberty in Christ. It's that love we have for him. It's that relationship that he wants that we should keep. Hopefully I hadn't confused you too much today. And we're going to continue to talk about that liberty because this letter talks about that over and over. Paul continues to expand on it. All right, our time is up.